Well, we turn then to look at that passage from Luke's Gospel that we read. Uh, in our passage today, the, the two separate threads that we've seen over the past couple of weeks uh, come together into one, as Luke recounts for us uh, the meeting of Mary and Elizabeth, and as he shows us there two key things. Firstly, we see John's role in the beginning. We see him pointing to Jesus as the greater and the more significant. If there was any doubt in the two preceding stories of the uh, announcement of John's coming birth and the announcement of Jesus' coming birth, if there was any doubt uh, which of those births would be more important, there cannot be any such doubt by the end of this passage. And secondly, uh, what we have is a much fuller response from Mary than we had last week to the news that she's received. Both of the elements of this story are overflowing with joy and excitement about what is happening to these two women, about the children who are to be born, or rather especially about one of those children. So I wonder how you celebrate uh, your joys and your triumphs. How do you rejoice at good news? Because I'm not sure we're all that good at it here in Scotland in the 21st century. Maybe it's just me, but I see the pictures uh, on the television and in the papers uh, of people in other countries who, who go to celebrate a political victory, who celebrate the overthrow of a tyrant, who celebrate a personal triumph in their own lives. And we see them you know, firing their guns into the air and dancing in the streets and shouting for joy. And we just don't do that, do we? The closest we come is you know, graduates throwing their caps into the air. Um, up for a, a fancy photo. And, and frankly, that's become so ritualised, there's an expression of joy, I don't think it's all that significant anymore. It's just, it's just what you do, isn't it? So I think maybe there's something that we could learn from these women about how we are to express true joy in our lives. Not only generally uh, our joy at different things that happen, but also particularly our joy about what God has done for us. So if we look at those first six verses, if we look at what Elizabeth has to say, we see her excitement overflowing as these women come and greet one another. So Mary has hurried over to see her cousin, to see with her own eyes what the angel has told her, to see that Elizabeth, who was unable to conceive, is now in her sixth month. And as soon as she arrives, both of them, both of them are concerned not with the miraculous conception of John the Baptist, but with the hope of the Saviour, in Mary's womb. So verse 44 tells us that the very moment that Mary opens her mouth, John leaped for joy. John rejoices in the presence of his Saviour. Uh, it's certainly true that babies can and do make fairly dramatic movements at times, and sometimes for no particularly discernible reason. And I'm told that it's not uncommon for a baby to uh, move particularly when the mother is feeling especially strong emotions. So I guess if you were so inclined, you could argue that maybe that's what's happening here. That Elizabeth is delighted to see her cousin, and she reads that into the movements of the fetus in her womb. But I think it's pretty clear that that isn't how Elizabeth sees it, that that isn't how Luke sees it as he narrates it. When we put together the statement back in verse 15, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, he is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. When we put that together with the reference to the Holy Spirit filling Elizabeth in verse 41, and to her interpretation of the movements in verse 44, I think it's pretty clear that we are to see the movements of this baby as much more significant than just uh, a coincidence or just a response to his mother's joy. 
John leaps in his mother's womb because he is overjoyed. Because the Holy Spirit, who already indwells this baby, enables him on some level to recognise who has come to visit. Not just the woman standing there, but the baby in her bed. And he responds in the only way proper. He leaps for joy. Even before Elizabeth can respond herself, John is leaping for joy. Now very soon Elizabeth does get that chance to respond, and what a response it is. Because Elizabeth puts into words the joy that the baby can only be shown by jumping up and down. Verse 41 says she's filled with the Spirit, and so the words that she now says are inspired by God himself. Elizabeth speaks with prophetic authority, with divine inspiration. So it seems to me that not only the specific words that she uses, but also the very fact that she knows there's something to be excited about. Verse 39 tells us Mary hurried there, so I think we're meant to take it that this conversation is taking place well before Mary could possibly be showing any signs of her own pregnancy. And the phrase here is so immediate that I think Elizabeth is rejoicing before Mary can have even told her any of what has happened to her. God has revealed to Elizabeth that Mary is pregnant, and more than that, that she is the mother of my Lord, verse 43. And so Elizabeth's joy overflows, and she cries out, verse 42, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. There's a possible confusion there, isn't there? A phrase like this it sort of sounds like Mary and her child are, are of equal rank. Blessed are you, and blessed is the child. Or, or even maybe Mary is more blessed being named first. Now, of course, it's unlikely that Luke would intend to convey such an impression, isn't it? And it seems that what's going on here is that this is a case where a word has a greater range of meaning in one language than in another. So the Greek word chai, which 99% of the time just means and, sometimes does get used in other ways. And including especially in the sort of colloquial speech where if you were doing it properly and formally, you might use a different word. It gets used uh, to, to refer to a broader range. So it seems that here Elizabeth, in her excitement, doesn't quite get as far as thinking of the word because, but just lands on and instead. Blessed are you among women because blessed is the child you will bear. Does seem to capture perhaps more fully the sense of what she intends. I'm sure if she were stopping and carefully composing the poem, she'd have spoken a little bit more precisely. But in any case, that seems to be the meaning, doesn't it? Mary is blessed because she's carrying a blessed child. So the evidence that God's favour is upon her is found in her womb. Verse 43 clarifies that Elizabeth knows Mary is not the Lord, but the mother of the Lord. We sang that Psalm 110 a few minutes ago, in which David says, The Lord said to my Lord, Jesus is the Lord. Jesus has authority. And so again, verse 45, Mary is blessed as the one who has believed God's promises. And then secondly, uh, in response to Elizabeth's excitement, Mary's own joy overflows as well. Then this song seems to be a bit more careful than Elizabeth's exclamations, doesn't it? More, more structured and certainly more full of Old Testament allusions. But it is for that reason no less joyful, no less excited, because it shows evidence of preparation. Surely there's nothing implausible in imagining her spending the three or four days that the journey would have taken her churning these things over in her 
pondering how God was at work, reflecting on how God had acted in the past and how best she might express her wonder and her worship. Now her song seems to have a fair bit in common, particularly with Hannah's hymn of praise after the birth of Samuel, uh, as Hannah dedicates Samuel to God's service. That's why we read that passage uh, before the section from Luke a little earlier. Mary reflects on how God has acted in the past, and she uses that to inform her thoughts now. Some of you will have noticed that before the service there was a version of this uh, Mary's song playing. Uh, I thought that maybe since this big chunk of our passage is a song, that it might help us to hear it in such a form. That's uh, Keith and Christian Getty singing that one. We, we could have opted for Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, but as that was half an hour long and in Latin, I didn't think it would be quite as useful for us to get a sense of what Mary has to say. Now, words that form poetry or a song in one language can sometimes lose something in the translation, can't they? We look at the, the psalms and the poems in the, uh, in, the, in the Bible, and often they're not quite as convincing as poems in English, are they? So I thought perhaps to uh, take something that's gone to the effort of setting it into a musical setting would help us to grasp that. But of course it is less literally accurate, so don't worry, we're going to be sticking to the text of our Bibles uh, to look at uh, over the next few minutes. I don't know if you uh, find yourself moved to song regularly. Uh, given how utterly deficient my sense of rhythm, rhythm is, and how deficient my sense of melody is, it is remarkable to me just how often I do find myself uh, singing away to myself, or indeed uh, to poor Joanna and the boys when they're unfortunate enough to be around me as I do sing. Don't worry, I will not inflict a demonstration upon you. I only wish, though, that my off-the-cuff compositions had less to do with which child I'm going to tickle next, and more to do with what God has done for me. Because singing should be a natural part of our worship, shouldn't it? Singing and worship should be a natural part even of our day-to-day -day lives, not just of what we do today together on a Sunday. Mary's song is a natural expression of her worship, a song of the worship of God. In verse 48, Mary does say, from now on all generations will call me blessed. But that's not to say that she's self-important, that she's puffing herself up. We saw last week, didn't we, that being blessed, being highly favoured, uh, these aren't comments on Mary's virtuousness, but on what God has bestowed upon her. So Mary is aware of God's grace given to her, not saying that she's favoured because she deserves to be, but noting that God has chosen to favour her. And she sees in verse 48 that her natural state is one of humility that she comes from a lowly position in life. She knows by now that she is not anybody important. She's just an ordinary girl engaged to marry an ordinary man. You see, God needs absolutely nothing from her in order to be able to do his work. He isn't dependent on her for any part of his plan. It doesn't matter that she is a nobody, because God can still work through her. And similarly, of course, God does not need our high standing. He does not need our position. He does not need us to be great ourselves. God does not need our performance to work through us. It is so easy, isn't it, to think of ourselves as not quite good enough for God. Not good enough to be uh, worth him saving us, but even more than that, not good enough to think that he could ever use us to do anything. We think that we don't have the right abilities, we don't have the right talents and gifts, we don't have the right qualifications, and so how could God use us? Well, 
God chooses a humble, ordinary girl to be the mother of the saviour of the world. So what qualifications do you think that you need before God can use you? Perhaps it's time to stop making excuses, to stop looking for the reasons why you can't, and to get on with the tasks that God has given you. What then is Mary praising God for? What is the content of this song? Because from her humble position, Mary worships God. Verse 47, she describes God as her saviour. He is the reason for her rejoicing. Incidentally, her, her description of God as saviour should be more than enough just on its own to refute the, uh, frankly, baffling Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Mary's sinlessness uh, before she gave birth to Jesus. Because Mary sees that she is in need of God's salvation just as much as you and I. And because she knows she needs salvation, she rejoices in God, her Saviour. And so too should we. Because worship is always the right response to God's mighty deeds. We saw that in Hannah's song. We saw it in Zechariah's song of worship uh, that we'll see in a couple of weeks' time. Zechariah's response there much more appropriate to God's goodness to him than his attitude of doubt that we saw a couple of weeks ago. Worship is the natural response to what God has done for us. And I wonder whether singing in worship feels like that to us. Does it feel natural? Does it feel like an inevitable response to God's love? Or, or has it become for us just what we do, because that's what we do on a Sunday when we come to church? Is our worship a response to the glories of what God has done? It should be. It should be joyous delight in God, overflowing in song. And we might do well then to look at Mary as a model of how to worship as well. Not just noting that she does worship, but reflecting on how. This song then is rich in Old Testament allusions. Mary, overflowing with joy, fills her song with the knowledge of what God has done. Now, I'm not saying we need to know chapter and verse of every part of the Old Testament in order to be able to worship God. And in fact, whilst most of the commentators on this passage are unanimous that the song is full of Old Testament references, most of them are actually quite non-specific on what those are. They don't go through each and every verse and say, okay, so verse 52, rule down rulers. That must be from 2 Kings 8.13. And verse 53 is from Jeremiah 5 and so on and so on. They don't do that. It isn't that clear cut because these aren't so much Old Testament quotations as they are Old Testament allusions. The ideas behind what she says have clearly come out of God's word, even if not corresponding exactly to a specific verse. So we don't need to go and try and compose a spontaneous song to express our joy by quoting chapter and verse to God. But we might bear in mind that Mary's scriptural knowledge is clearly so considerable that as she walks along on her journey, she could bring it to mind and use it to feed her song. That the more we dwell in the life Bible, the more it will affect our inmost being, the more it will subconsciously mould our attitudes, and the more we will know its words and ideas. So if you want a specific starting point, then you can do worse than look at the Psalms in the Bible. The Psalms, of course, but also the less obvious ones from Moses and Miriam and David and Hannah. Just as being filled with the Holy Spirit drives us to worship, being filled with the Word drives us to worship. Being filled with the Word drives us to joyous praise and praising for by God's revelation of himself. So Mary worships God principally for his salvation. 
She knows that the baby she carries represents his salvation and she is overjoyed. That should be the biggest driver of our worship, shouldn't it? Does the joyous knowledge that God has saved you drive you to worship? If it doesn't, I suggest that you have forgotten the enormity of what God has done for you. I'm not saying that you should be floating around on a cloud the whole time. I'm not saying that we should uh, always have a beaming smile on our face. This isn't that kind of joy, if you like. It is okay at times to feel sadness and grief. We don't need to manufacture ecstasy at all times. But there should be that deep and underlying joy, that bedrock of delight in the salvation that we have. So if you've lost that joy, or if you've never experienced it, what are you going to do about it? Let me urge you to consider anew what God has done. To take the time to reflect, to dwell on what God has done for you. You might consider spending some time reading through the book of Romans that lays it out so clearly, step by step, what God has done. If you'd find it helpful to do that with someone else, then grab someone, ask someone to read through Romans with you. Come and grab me for that matter. I'd love to spend a bit of time each week reading through Romans with somebody. That'd be wonderful. How will you recapture that joy? It matters. Think about it. So then Mary praises God for his salvation. And secondly, her praise encompasses God's judgment. Verse 50 shows that her conception of salvation is broader than herself. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. His salvation is available to all, at all times and in all places. But as ever, salvation requires something to be saved from. The angel told Joseph, Jesus was to save his people from their sins. God will will judge people for their sins. The latter verses of this song make that clear. And these verses are written as referring to events in the past, and there are instances of God doing those things in the past. But more properly, these verses are in uh, what you can call the prophetic perfect tense. In other words, they refer to events in the future, they are prophetic, but they do so as if they were in the past, in the perfect tense, because it is so certain that they will happen. Some of you might know, I I spent a couple of years uh, when I was growing up living in Romania, uh, I've forgotten most of the language, but one of the few things that have stuck with me is the slightly unusual form of words that you use as you walk out the door. Uh, you say, applicat, which literally means something like, I have left. I suppose we maybe say something like, I'm out the door. Uh, and we're referring there as if it were in the past to something that hasn't actually happened yet. I'm gone. I know it will absolutely happen. I'm going to leave any moment now. It's that same kind of idea, the prophetic perfect, that refers to a future event as if it were in the past, because it is so sure and so certain. Mary sees here that the impending birth of Jesus is the beginning of the fulfilment of God's promises. Here it is, the very thing that God's people have been waiting for down through the ages has come, has arrived. This is what they've been hoping and dreaming about. It is so certain that God will do these things. Judgment will surely come, just as surely as God's mercy extends to those who fear him. Because the two are intertwined, aren't they? The proud are scattered, and the humble are lifted up. The proud, those who are so full of themselves, they don't think they even need God. And the humble, 
those who know that they need God's help. Peter exhorts us, doesn't he? Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. The proud are brought low, and the humble lifted up. The hungry are filled, and the rich are left empty. God's Luke's Gospel is full of this message of hope for the poor, for the weak, for the hungry, for the needy. Jesus said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. God's inevitable, unavoidable judgment is at one and the same time salvation for those who accept it and punishment for those who do not. Thirdly, Mary worships a God who does as he has said he will do. She worships a God who keeps his promises. A God who acted the same way towards her here as he acted in the days of Abraham. And a God who continues the same way today. Have a look at verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Psalm 98 verse 3 perhaps stands in the background here. He has remembered his love and his faithfulness to Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Here what Mary and Elizabeth see God doing is exactly what they should have expected, isn't it? Because this is the messianic hope that has been uh, sustaining the faithful in Israel through the ages. This is what they've been waiting for. This is what God said he would do. Whilst this is earth-shatteringly new, this is radical and different, it's also nothing more than a continuation of God's mercy to Abraham. God has remembered to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever. So God has taken the initiative. God the Lord, the Saviour, the Powerful One, the Holy One, the Merciful One. God is worthy of Elizabeth's worship, of Mary's worship, and of our worship. God is the ultimate reason why we celebrate at Christmas, why we celebrate throughout the year and throughout our lives. So I think let's uh, play that song from before the service again. And as you listen to those lyrics, as you listen to Mary's song of joyous worship, why you take that opportunity to reflect on God's plan of salvation, to reflect on what God has done for each of us, to feel the joy that that knowledge brings to consider what you might do to keep it fresh or to recapture it if you need to. So let's listen.
Lord our God, we praise you as our hope, as our salvation, as our saving. We praise you as the one who sits in judgment over the whole earth. Lord, would you give us that deep and abiding joy that fills our lives in all that we do, moment by moment. Lord, might it come bursting out in joyous expressions of praise to you. For the glory of your name and yours alone. Amen. <coughs> we'll finish then by singing together again. Uh, tell out my